Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast, an exploration of the blurry line separating our physical world from our abstract realities. You talk about something called a soul's high adventure. Man is born with a certain functioning. A kind of house of meaning that we dwell in. A clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. These represent a common human inheritance. A common vocabulary of rituals and symbols. Let's let you know where you are. Such and such a hero has done so and so, and that is your what am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. you got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up. Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Conversations and stories, myths and reality, science and the gods we worship, the esoteric and the everyday. Come explore with me. My guest today is international best-selling author Shelley Reed. Shelley's debut novel, Go as a River, is an amazing story that's being translated into over 30 languages. Shelley taught writing and literature as a senior lecturer at Western Colorado University for nearly three decades, where she was also a founder of the Interdisciplinary Environment and Sustainability major and the Prime program for at-risk students. She's a regular contributor to Crest Butte Magazine and Gunnison Valley Journal. Shelley is a fifth-generation Coloradan who lives with her family in the Elk Mountains of the Western Slope. I found Shelly to be energetic, enthusiastic, and deeply insightful. I truly enjoyed my conversation with Shelly, and I hope you do as well. Okay, hi Shelly. Hi Josh, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining me on the Explorer Poet Podcast. Oh, I'm super honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just so you know, I did read your book. I have it right here in front of me, Go as a River. <laughs> Uh, amazing, fantastic book. As soon as I read it, I thought I've got to talk to Shelly because, yeah. uh, there's a lot of depth there. It's from, it's like a, from an outside, maybe like an uninitiated perspective. It seems just like a simple story. It seems like a story that could be absolutely true, but I saw just so much symbology in the story and so much mm -hmm. imagery that came out at me that I thought, wow, this, this is fantastic. And to be your first, your debut novel as well, uh, just. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for reading it. And thank you for seeing those layers because I actually worked on this book really hard. <laughs> the layers were very intentional. So yeah. I, I know readers read it on a variety of levels, but I'm always really grateful to hear of someone who really dug in. So I appreciate that very much. Yeah, absolutely. And when I say it seems like a simple story, that's that's not a, it's like this simplicity comes at the end of of a lot of complexity and a lot of work. And I could tell just by reading it that you put in a lot of work. Thank you. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Um, to, to kick this off, I want to actually read from uh, the quote on your jacket uh, on, the, on the book. And okay. it says, this stunning debut explores what it means to lead your life as if it were a river, gathering and flowing, finding a way forward, even when the river is dammed. And so to kick off this conversation, I just wanted to ask you about, uh, or just get your thoughts on, on, uh, rivers and flowing waters. Oh where does, my God. Where does that come from and what does it speak to you <laughs> or how does it speak to you? Oh gosh. It speaks to me in so many different ways. Rivers, you know, the life force of the river, 
Uh, I'm a fifth generation Coloradoan, so I have deep, deep roots in my homeland and in the land itself. And I live every day of my life at 9,000 feet elevation, high in the Colorado Rockies on the Western Slope. And landscape, wilderness, um, appreciation of the natural world has really defined my life. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful I was raised that way by parents and family who really valued wild landscapes and had me out in it since I was a little kid my entire life. I don't ever remember a time that we weren't out, you know, in it, you know, in a meaningful way, uh, hiking and climbing mountains and camping and skiing and and valuing it, loving, loving the natural world. So I've really formed my life very intentionally to make sure that I'm surrounded by that beauty and that wisdom. Um, part of that has been really admiring and studying wild rivers. Uh, in uh, the American West, it's very dry. You know, water is a constant issue in the American West. But I happen to live in the Gunnison Valley, where the most of the novel is set, actually. Um, my homeland here in the Gunnison Valley uh, is, is rich with water. And we have tributaries and and um, streams and rivers and headwaters. It's a headwaters, the Gunnison is just down from my house, which is flows right into the Colorado River. And um, I've just really always deeply, deeply valued wild rivers and everything that they can teach us. So that emerged as one of the dominant themes of my book. Um, the Gunnison River uh, figures so prominently in the book. It's almost a character in and of itself, uh, yeah. the North Fork and the Animus Rivers here in Colorado also are, are prominently in a picture prominently in the book. And I think with the title and with that um, development of the idea of everything that rivers can teach us, what I was really going for is what you alluded to there, uh, what's printed on the jacket cover, is the idea that rivers find a way to move forward. The flow of a river, um, you know, it gathers and it nurtures along the way. I think that's a really powerful metaphor for the way that our lives move. We gather ourselves little by little. We nurture along the way, but also we find a way to move around obstacle, you know, up and over or around or carving new banks when necessary, a river finds a way to move forward. And in difficult times, I have found that incredibly powerful as a metaphor um, for the strength that all of us hold inside of us. So the idea of Go as a River, the main character of my novel, really her entire journey throughout the course of the novel is to figure out for herself what does it mean to be able to go as a river. And I've pondered that quite a bit in my own life as well. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, when I think about the river, first of all, I think the the connection between what you're saying, the way a river continues to flow, it's uh, life is this thing, like Robert Frost says, the one thing I've learned about life is that it keeps going. And yeah. if you can't find a way to keep flowing, to keep finding that course, uh, life can become very stagnant. You turn into this, this muddy pool or something, and you have to keep that freshness going by keeping continuing to move forward. But then also, I don't want to give too much away about your book because I want people to go read it. But um, the idea of your main character, Victoria, and and uh, the everything she knows in this river and how this river it's 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 almost religious in a sense because yeah. her entire life kind of goes through a sort of baptism with yeah. this river, and then she has to 
she has to move elsewhere and reemerge as this other person. She has to find herself there. And yeah. she, there's so much that gets washed away, but so much that she takes with her moving forward. Yeah, oh, I really love that. I love that image of the of the baptism, the idea of the baptism. You know, water figures so prominently in the mythologies of our culture, uh, in the mythologies of all cultures, actually. Water is so essential to all of life. You know, if you even think about the concept of the, of the baptism, all what is rooted in water and respect and reverence for water across cultures, um, it's really fascinating to me. I think that um, for Victoria, specifically, you know, the, the, the river is sacred. Her homeland is sacred. The idea of home is sacred. And so the novel ultimately very much becomes about place and about displacement. It right. becomes about, you know, loss and, um, and uh, what can and cannot be reclaimed in the face of loss, especially in the place, in the face of displacement. Um, it's about digging down and knowing, figuring out that we are much stronger and more resilient than we know we are until we have to bear the seemingly unbearable. Yeah. So, you know, what you're saying, the idea that, um, you know, this strength that a river has, um, what I have found and then the idea with the Robert Frost quote of that we you know life continues and we have to find a way to continue too. I think that really embodying that, really believing that is maybe the it can be so empowering and it might be exactly the message that a lot of people need at this sort of rather complicated moment in human right. history. Um, you know, we live in troubled times, and I think our souls are a little troubled. I hope my novel turns people toward the natural world and all that it can teach us, both reverence for the natural world, but also, you know, humbling and instructive that it can be. I hope that it that people can tap into a little bit of what Victoria discovers and certainly what I know in my own life that within the lessons of the natural world, we can bolster ourselves. We can connect. We can find something that's authentic in this right. age of agony and pain. And, and so I, I hope that that idea of we are stronger and more resilient than we know we are and that we can find that strength when we really need it. That is the metaphor of the river. And I hope that resonates with readers and empowers them to, you know, go forward and be their best selves, no matter what challenge comes our way. Yeah, absolutely. And oftentimes those challenges are, they're kind of constructed of our own, <laughs> our own uh, environment. For example, uh, in the book, and also it seems in your own life, there's a lot of, you know, you say there's a lot of connection with nature, going into nature, and you find refreshment, you find renewal. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe uh, you can share this real quick, and then I can go on. But um, in the book, it doesn't seem like her family is all that religious, but you can see a very strong Judeo-Christian kind of environment, yeah. this, this settling kind of environment that precludes outside ideas, outside characters. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm just curious if you grew up in a world like that, if you grew up in a, a world full of religious kind of structure, or were you just more in the general culture of the, of the times? You know, not not religious structure specifically had an influence on my life, but I think that I've always been really, really fascinated in, about how reality is constructed 
constructed, yeah. you know, the inherent biases of any given culture, um, what, how we're formed to have certain ideas about certain things. And I was a teacher for almost 30 years um, before I took early retirement to try to get this book. <laughs> One of the things I always love to explore with my students is the idea of, you know, like um, that which we feel that we know, like how do we know what we quote unquote know? Um, it's really a beautiful thing to compare knowledge in one culture up against knowledge in another culture and see how vastly different worldviews can be. Anything that unpacks our assumptions about the world, especially if they've been sort of more programmed into us as opposed to us seeking them ourselves with our own critical mind and our own critical thinking skills. I always find that really fertile uh, ground for both spiritual and intellectual engagement of, of, of why do we think this way about this particular thing culturally, those inherited biases are always worth questioning. And so I have some characters in my novel who have inherited biases around religion, inherited biases around the proper way certainly inherited biases around the land and our relationship to the land and cultural notions of progress. And then unfortunately, also, I couldn't shy away from um, inherited biases, uh, inherited racism, the idea of, of the cultural construction of race, the cultural construction of, of hierarchy of human beings. Um, some people sort of blindly inherit that and believe that there is a correctness and a reality to that. And I wanted to unpack that a little bit in the book as well, um, primarily around the indigenous experience um, on the western slope of Colorado, you know, to the degree that I was able to represent it as a white woman. But more than anything, I just I appreciate your question, because I think that all of those notions of reality are so deeply complex. And it's only when we really pause and have the courage in a way to examine our own assumptions about the world. Do we understand how deeply complex they are? And I would hope that we would then come out of that examination with a lot more generosity and a lot more kindness and a lot more awareness of other people's experience of, of reality and of existence. So I think that I was raised to question. I was raised to, um, to have a tremendous amount of reverence for other human beings and other cultures and for the natural world. And I'm really, really grateful to my parents and my family for that because I felt like I see my own university students really struggle with that around that age when I have them in my classroom and I certainly did to a degree but but I think I came into young adulthood a pretty free thinker because I was encouraged to be so uh, as a child from my family and I am deeply deeply grateful for that. Yeah, I think I think you said it right, where if you have that freedom and you actually exercise it where you think about the things you think about or the things that yeah. you accept. Think about the things you think about. Yeah. Yeah. You you naturally you naturally begin to give other people a little bit more uh maybe a little bit more of a break for the things that they think about. Cause you can see, oh, maybe they're not thinking about it. Uh they're yeah. just kind of accepting it. When I was from my from I from my background, my growing up, I grew up in a world that was very structure the rules were very important and we weren't we were never encouraged to question anything and so uh when i read the book i could see that that she's coming up against this thing there's like yeah. this idea of this is how the world is and yes. everybody's supposed like you know this is a stage and we're all supposed to play our roles on the stage and yes. um 
going back to this idea of the river and and also nature, her escape into nature and what it taught her, what it turned, what had helped her become. Um, I read a lot of Carl Jung, and I don't know if you've read any Carl Jung, but he, yeah, he talks a lot about the unconscious. And there's this process of growing up, of becoming ourselves, where we have to go in, like we have to dissolve into the unconscious again. And again, going back to water, the, the water represents this unconscious. It's this undifferentiated mass and yes. anything is possible. And, and so the, the, the uh, narrative within the book, in your story of her both observing the water and what it means, but also her experience in nature and what this means for her. And then coming out of that, once she comes yes. back to this world, where things are structured and people follow roles, there's no way she could ever fit back in the way right. that she had before. And now she's realized that that way of being was, was holding her back in a way. It wasn't allowing her to fully experience even herself, her own thoughts, her own feelings, her own desires. And so uh, again, I love the, the connection with nature and then also that, that water dissolving yourself and then coming back. Oh, I love that. You're such a careful reader. I, I love that you could see all of that be in there because for me, Victoria, when the novel opens, it's 1948. She's 17 years old. It's a rural location in, here on the western slope of Colorado. Victoria Nash, who, who by the way, is a character who I, I lived with for a really long time because <laughs> it took me so long to write this book. Um, but she's a character who I love. I adore this young woman. You know, the opening of the book, she really um, is so constricted by outside definitions of who she is and who she can be. She really has no sense of her own possibility, uh, uh, her possibilities in the world. And I think that that would be very common for a young woman uh, in 1948 in rural Colorado. I, I think that that force is upon all of us, but I, I, do, I did want to represent the female experience, especially um, historically, of, um, you know, that I think women have always had to fight a little bit harder um, in order to claim our identities, in order to be our true selves outside of the context of who we're being told to be. And that is certainly true for Victoria when the novel opens. And so I love that you use the term and the idea of how we become ourselves, because that really is a central theme of the novel. In fact, later in the book, there's a direct quote from Victoria who said, she says, what I've learned most about becoming is that it takes time. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to ask that fundamental question in the novel of how do we become ourselves? How does anyone break the chains of expectation, of convention, of, um, of all of the things that constrict us about our own identities and how do we dig in and find who we truly are, you know, in the midst of all of that noise and in the midst of all of that dictation. Um, for Victoria, she realizes this through a variety of very difficult circumstances. Very difficult. Yeah, very difficult. <laughs> very difficult. <laughs> they made me cry. I, I swear I was reading your book and I was crying. So yeah, very difficult. <laughs> I appreciate that, actually. I, I love to hear that because it means that something I've written has tapped into the human heart on that level, you know, that it would make you cry. I appreciate that because, yeah, poor Victoria, in a way, has gone through, yeah. uh, goes through 
really a series of of difficulties. And each time she has to choose, you know, is that the difficulty that's going to take her out? Or is that the difficulty that she's going to emerge from a little stronger and a little more aware of herself and her own capabilities? I, I tried to write her character and her journey and that journey of becoming as sort of a two steps forward, one step back journey, because I certainly think in my own life, that's certainly been true. And I, I think that's a more authentic representation of how we actually grow. You know, we we do our best with each challenge and difficulty that comes our way. But it's not like because we have faced a couple challenges, we then go into the next challenge so wise and so strong. I think we still falter. And Victoria certainly falters. And I wanted to include that in her journey, because I think that that is part of the empathy and compassion for the human experience that I'm trying to evoke in the book of just to say, hey, hey, everybody, it's really hard to be a human being. Let's cut one another more slack and offer one another more kindness. Here is Victoria doing her very best to emerge from each challenge a little bit stronger and a little bit wiser. But it's not always true for her, just like it hasn't always been true for me. And I, I think to highlight that for the readers, the way in which we become ourselves is not a straight line. It's not a victory. It's inch by inch and step by step of just showing up every day and trying to do our very best. And it would be nice if we had a little bit more kindness and compassion for one another as we're, as most of us are muddling through, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. I want to, I want to agree with two of the things you said, first of all, going way back when you were talking about wanting to represent women and having to find their, their place, their voice, who they are. I think, you know, she's, she's, it's written in the past in the, you said 1948 is when it opens. Eight to 1971 is the span of the novel, yeah. Yeah, I think in that time period, that was definitely a challenge for women. But to be honest, I think I really related to the character because I saw her in a lot of the women that I know in my own life who are still trying to figure this thing out where, you know, what does it mean to be a woman and how do I how do I become an individual in, in this world? Individual, yeah, and, and to know to know my full strength, to know my full power in the world. I think that's true for any human being, but I think it's true more powerfully for anyone who has in the, you know, in the dominant hierarchies of our, of our inherited culture, anyone who has, who has been lower on that hierarchy, people of color, anyone who has not been encouraged by our culture to find their full strength and their full power, all of, all of, those people need to fight harder in it. I think it's actually really important to acknowledge that. So thank yeah. you for acknowledging that. Yeah. There's definitely <laughs> layers and some people are farther down in those layers. And so it's even more challenging the more you have to climb out. But then the mm -hmm. other thing I wanted to agree with was you were saying, as we grow, we learn, you want to feel like, okay, I overcame something. And so now I'm up here, but really yeah. you still feel down here. Yeah. And, and yeah. part of that, part of that, honestly, I think is that as you go through life, you still experience very difficult, painful things. You still experience things that really set you back emotionally. And just because you, you know, just because you have a driver's license or you're 18 or you have a college degree or you hold a real job doesn't mean that the moment something happens, you can instantly integrate it into your life and become this, this, uh, you can handle it like some adult. Like we all still have the same emotions inside of us that we've always had since we were children. And there's going to be a period where you just have to, you know, at first you may just resist the emotion. You may resist the pain, whatever that challenge is, but there's always going to come 
you know, it's going to take time to process anything to get it fully through us because there are steps to grieving and there are steps to healing. And, uh, it can feel, it can feel like days, weeks, months, or even years before you get to that next rung. Oh, for sure. And, and there's really no overcoming it. I mean, I think in response to that, I would say, I would say a couple of things. And, and one is, I think we do one another a great service by admitting and saying openly and clearly exactly what you said, because it, it creates that generosity, both to self and to others, which I think is really crucial. Um, but also this idea that any experience, any growth, any time really is the idea of linearity um, is, a, is, a, is one of the great myths of our, of our culture. Yeah, there are so myth. many... <laughs> It's a myth. There are so many myths to unpack around identity, and there's so many myths to unpack around um, kind of the trips we play on ourselves and our own minds and our shoulds, you know, quote yeah. unquote, air quotes around shoulds. Um, shoulds can really screw people up and alienate themselves from a compassionate relationship to the, their own being, to their own selves, let alone to other right. people living in such judgment against oneself and other people. Instead, we could shift and live instead with generosity and awareness, you know, of, of the human experience and everyone that we meet. I, I find that that would be the much kinder path. Um, but we certainly can start with ourselves, like you're saying, give ourselves more generosity, not buy into the myths that say we're supposed to grieve for this long, we're supposed to come out stronger. And, and, uh, and we will not falter because we've been through this or, or that there's any end point to growth. I do think we sell young people this idea that, okay, if you accomplish XYZ, then you're done and you're on your way and you're formed. And you should just go be happy. <laughs> and I, that is just simply not true. That's not the way that life unfolds. Every single day we wake up and we show up to what is in front of us and the challenges that come. And that never changes from birth until a hopeful old age. Yeah. Um, the, and I, I think that we would all do ourselves a great service to just acknowledge that, you know, this idea of becoming and how we become ourselves. Um, I do hope that that is one of the central themes that um that people take away from the book uh through victoria's journey i that is what i love about her the most is that uh incrementally very incrementally from the time frame of the book 1948 to 1971 she grows uh but i like i said in a way that i think is much more authentic to the way that we all grow which is with plenty of struggle along the way yeah. And a lot of, even a lot of self-doubt, uh, as you go, knowing whether or not you're taking the right step in the right direction. A lot of fear, you know, a yeah. lot of fear, a lot of, she's a very solitary character. And so I, uh, I have left Victoria to sort of work out a lot of these things on her own. Her closest relationships are certainly with the land and with the peach trees that, that, um, are pretty prominent in the book. And um, she only turns to fellow human beings for strength a couple times in the book. Um, I I believe in solitude. <laughs> I love to go out in the natural world and wild landscapes by myself and um, just sit and be and learn and think. Um, I don't know that we as individuals have a lot of opportunity for solitude in the modern world, I think that we've even sort of trained our young people to fear it or to not know how to be in solitude or in silence. I think we all do ourselves a great disservice. We don't clear space for that in our lives. 
And so I purposefully made Victoria a relatively solitary character and a lot of the growth that she has to go through um, just sort of between her and her, because I think ultimately right. that is, that is how it, how it is for, for, yeah. for people and the way in which the growth that actually sticks, it's really between you and you and uh, show up to that. I hope you can show up to that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. I'm a, I'm also a writer. And so I'm, uh, I spend a lot of time by myself. It's like inherently an introverted activity where you just want to sit with your own thoughts. And so for some people oh, it's yeah. painful and for some people it's, it's like a great escape. <laughs> for me, it's essential. It's yeah. essential. It's been a very strange thing as a writer. I'm coming to this later in life. Yeah, I'm 57 years old and this is my debut novel. Like I said, I've been a teacher for the past 30 years and a mom and, you know, just doing life. <laughs> and, uh, um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, though, and I'm really, really grateful that I've come back around to it at this time of my life. I really own, oh, Victoria Nash, that because she's her character. I once I loved her so much and her story started evolving in my imagination. She's really who's turned me back toward my writing life. But here I am in it thinking, wow, for the first time in my life, I can focus on that solitary part of myself. I can focus on the silence and the deep creativity that comes with wanting to tell stories. Um, and yet my book has been um, very unexpectedly uh, a hit all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> Darn, shoot. There goes your solitude. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a funny thing because I would be insane to be um, unhappy about that. that right. you know, of course, that's a the author's dream it's a it's a great problem to have because what i know primarily the reason that's a dream is i know that victoria's story which i hold so deeply in my heart um is touching as many people as as possible i never imagined it would touch this many hearts and this many people would love it and um, so that's a wonderful wonderful thing but it's a very strange thing as an author to to um be both people right. to be the very very solid very um, uh, creative person that needs that silence. And also now for me, this very public self that I've never on a level that I've never had to experience before, um, two very different people trying to exist at the same time in right. my being. It's a very new experience for me. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I'm sitting up every day and doing doing my best with it. Take but, it one um, day at a time. One day at a time yeah. with a ton of gratitude, a ton yeah. of gratitude. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, but I mean, my story aside, I think it's difficult for anybody to clear that creative space in one's life. We all have our have to have our jobs. We all have to be in the world. We can't just, you know, like we have this sort of imagined idea of the poet or the writer who just sort of like gets to recluse in solitude and, and write genius things. But that is not the reality for most people. That's why I'm publishing my first novel at 57 years right. old. And I full time and raising my kids I didn't have time to tap into my creativity um some people maybe do that better than I but I I don't and I I've I've been hoping that my my story and my journey as a writer is inspiring to other writers in that I was I have been one of those people that had to have a full-time job and had yeah. to figure it out and had stay committed to a story it took me about 12 years to write go as a river wow um chip Lay out it little by little by little. And the thing I'm actually most proud of in that journey is that I never gave up on it because yeah. I had plenty of opportunities to do so because I was literally just fitting it in in the margins of my life. Um, but I hope that that reminds other creative 
people, I mean, I think everyone's creative on some level, but people who who deeply want to create, um, that uh, it's the rare person who can completely clear their life for that creativity and that you do have to just fit it in. But I would really, really encourage everybody to continue to believe in that aspect of yourself and to believe that that writing matters or that art that you want to create matters and to stick with it no matter the circumstances. Yeah. 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 I certainly went through that for a long period of my life where I was in the corporate world. I was an accountant. I was in like finance and operations. And I, you know, I went that route because it was safe and there was money and I could provide (laughs) because I, especially growing up in the religious world I grew up in, I had this idea of what life was supposed to be. And a big part of that was being a husband and father. And so I went and became a husband and father and there's no regret there, but at the same time, uh, that's, that's just added responsibility where you have this thing in the back of your head telling you you're supposed to be doing a thing. And it goes contrary to what everything the world is telling you you're supposed to do. And, uh, yeah, you have to, you have to figure out how to create, how to find the time to create, because this is one thing, uh, there's a bunch of um, other, sim- there's some more symbology and actually some characters that I wanted to talk to you about. But given the the topic we're on right now, um, I wanted to talk to you about the act of creation as you create this physical object, this book, this story, but, but what it's actually doing is probably recreating you or helping you become this person. And so I wanted to ask you, well, there's a couple of quotes. The first one is, um, this is a quote from a guy named Paulo Coelho. And he says, sorry, (laughs) I love him. (laughs) Okay. He says the reward of our work is not what we get, but what we become. Mm -hmm. And then from your own book at the very front, uh, you have a quote from Annie Dillard that says at a certain point, you say to the woods, to the sea, to the mountains, the world, now I am ready. Yeah. Totally. So in writing this book, your, your debut novel, debut novel, you, you waited for years, you worked, you worked on it for 12 years, but you never gave up. Uh, in working on this book, what did you learn about yourself and how did you, how did, what did you find about yourself and how did you become something new? Yeah. Well, great and deep question. I, I uh, will have to narrow that down because I probably have a multitude of of answers uh, for that question. But one thing that I think about when I when I look back on the process of writing this novel, because honestly, a little bit, it feels a little bit like a blur. <laughs> uh, I was so busy just living my life and doing my things and and uh, how I fit it in, how I finished it. Sometimes I'm like, I don't, know, I don't even know how I did that, but I, I think that it was coming from the entire story and the whole drive to finish it and to write it and engage with it came from a deeply, deeply authentic place inside of myself, a place that believes that stories matter, a place that had something to say, a place that believes that language matters and the careful construction of every single sentence in this book. Like I read a lot of poetry. I, I deeply, deeply admire and love beautiful words and well-chosen words. And so one of the reasons I think it took me so long uh, was the commitment to craft and, and, and language throughout the course of this book. So these were all choices that I made creatively um, that really were coming from such a deeply authentic place inside of myself. And it's actually a little piece of advice that I have for other writers is that to really tap into, you know, get out of those quote unquote supposed tos that you and I are talking about. We have a lot of, um, you know, cultural 
mythology around the artist and the writer or even a book or or what it's supposed to mean to you, you know, the sales and the bestseller lists and all of those things. None of of those things ultimately matter in comparison to the authenticity of the story that you want to tell, the authenticity of your voice that you want to put out into the world. And so if I were to uh, to sort of nail down one essential part of, of uh, what this journey meant to me personally, I think it would be really discovering that and honoring that in the process of writing this book. Um, in those 12 years, I personally suffered a lot, actually. I had um, a very tragic death in my family. I um, had a lot of loss. Uh, my husband had a horrible brain injury. I had a terrible illness that took me years to recover from, was raising my kids. The world was a bit of a mess. Um, I grew personally so much in those years um, that I was writing this book and I became a deeper, richer human being for that growth and that aging. And um, Victoria's character then became deeper and richer and the story became deeper and richer. The thematic concerns of the book became deeper and richer along the way. So we kind of evolved together. You know, that Annie Dillard quote, you, you mentioned the idea that now I am ready. Now I was so ready to finally write the book that I think I had wanted to write since I was very young, but I would, could not have written this book no way when I was in my 20s. I just didn't personally have the awareness, the depth, the wisdom, the experience to say what I ended up saying in this book. So right. journey, that parallel journey, I end up looking back on it and knowing that it was all just perfect. Um, it was correct for me. It was correct for the book. And it's just, I think it's just for me, a very human thing to say of that, you know, you, you just do the best you can. And that's all I did um, every day through those challenges and every day writing this book. So I think those are probably the most valuable lessons that I will come away from both as a writer and as a human after engaging in the process of writing this novel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, just in reading your novel, like I said, the what you were saying about word choice and the care of your craft, like I could tell it's okay. like reading, reading a book like this is like listening to a song where you can tell the, the, the musician doesn't want the song to end. So they just, <laughs> they just keep, you know, adding here and there. How can we, you know, morph this more? It's like this beautiful thing where, Thank um, you. yeah, you really feel it. And Thank then, you. and then, um, it, I just had this thought as you were talking, but, uh, because I think a lot about, this about the first artistic creation people produce, like the first piece of art, the first piece of writing, music, painting, sculpture, whatever it is. It's uh, if you really do that thing you're talking about, where you you turn out you tune out the noise, and you stop thinking about bestseller lists, you stop thinking about all of the you know the all everything basically that you're going through now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just put that out and just focus on what you're doing. You can't help but have the truth kind of bubble up from your unconscious. Yes. Yes. And, and in a way I've said this before on the podcast, but I think about ego versus unconscious, all creative acts are this pairing of a masculine and a feminine side. Mm. And in all of life, creativity or creation comes from this pairing of, of, uh, these two forces. And from an artistic perspective, the, the objective of the masculine energy is to force you to sit down and write. Yes. It's to get and, it into the world. 
action, right? Yeah, action. that action. But once the creative process is initiated, the masculine actually needs to step away. Just like in the gestation of an embryo, the, right. the feminine takes over. I love that. Yeah. And the feminine is that unconscious kind of collective Free. where everything is just there. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so the you... Creator, the, the, uh, yeah, I agree. The, the creator, the, the life force, the force, right? The, yeah. The creator. A, a very intangible and yet very essential thing. Yeah. And it's, it's that masculine energy's job to then just kind of protect that process. Interesting. And, and really interesting framing of the idea of, because it is, you know, all of creation is, is that interplay, you know, and, and I, I think that for me, you know, when I talk about going out into the natural world, for me, that those essential qualities of the of the of existence pared down to its most essential and its most basic and its most um, eternal, I guess, which is also a reflection of what you're saying. Like when you can pull back any lens and tap into something eternal and essential to being, you're much more able to transcend those um that cultural noise, you know, that we were speaking of earlier, or those worries, or those fears, or those supposed tos, or those, those, uh, those definitions that that restrain us or hold us back. I do think that's where good art comes from. I do think that's where good writing comes from. For me, it's actually how I climb mountains as well. Like the idea of of showing up with the deepest level of humility. Um, you you can approach creativity or mountain climbing or anything else with the idea that I'm going to conquer this, <laughs> or you can approach it with this idea of I'm going to stand before this with my deepest humble heart and my deepest vulnerability. You know, it's incredibly vulnerable to love. It's incredibly vulnerable to create. It's incredibly vulnerable to put your words out in the world. I don't know what people are going to then do with them, especially right. if they've deeply authentic place inside of yourself. So, so that, that vulnerability, that humility to me, that is what the natural world has, has taught me. There's a, there's a quote by um, a Norwegian uh, eco-philosopher named, named Arne Ness, who, that I love so, so much the quote, it says, you know, the, the, the closer, uh, the, uh, the smaller we come to feel compared to the mountain, the closer we come to participating in its greatness. So the smaller we come to feel compared to the mountain, the closer we come to participating in its greatness. To me, there's a humility there that can extend well beyond um, our relationship to the natural world, but to our creativity, to our approach to existence. You know, that idea, not smallness in a self-deprecating way, but smallness in a, in a reality check sort of a way, you know, where you pull back the lens on the vastness of existence. And, and the, it teaches us so much about what to um, worry about and what not to worry about, what to embrace and what let, to let go, where to put our limited energies in life. We're, we have this little brief moment to be a human on the planet Earth where all of our lives are this very brief moment. I think we, we do ourselves a great service by asking, how is it that I'm going to spend this tiny little blip of a, of a moment on the, on, the, on the earth? Mary Oliver says, you know, what, what do you plan to do with your one, with your one wild and precious life? Uh, I, I love that idea as, as a framing for how we move forward in our creativity, in our existence, in our relationships with other people, but especially in our relationships with ourselves. Um, what are we going to be burdened by? And what are we going to free up in order to be our best 
most joyful and creative selves. Um, at 57 years old, I've spent a lot of time pondering and and considering this, um, how to live one's best life. And these are the answers that I've come to for myself. And I did try to pour a lot of that into the book as well. Yeah, that's beautiful. Your analogy of the mountain rings true to me because you can show up with your ego and say, I'm going to conquer it. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna fill up this mountain or I'm gonna take it over or something. Or to, to, <laughs> to, to put it the other way, you could say, here's here is nature, here's this mountain, here's this great force, and I will let it fill me up. Let it fill me up. Let me yeah. participate, you know. I mean, this vastness that I'm only the tiniest little participant. What an right. honor to participate in this greatness for even a tiny moment. It's a very different way of walking in the world. Um, but I guess I would suggest that it serves us as humans and also serves us as creators. Um, and also I always tell my students that each of us as creators, as writers have something very, very unique to say. If you can tap into that deep authentic place inside of you, if you can transcend cliche and uh, if you can really go full yourself and have the confidence to do so, there is not a human being on the entire planet Earth that can tell the story that you can tell, that sees the world, that sees other human beings, that that sees particulars and specifics, the way that your lens and your eyes and your heart sees it. And so tell your story, write Create your poem, write your song, write your book, tell your story. You're going to create a story that nobody else on the planet has ever created or no one has ever told and nobody's capable of telling it in the same way that you can, but only if you can tap into that most authentic place inside of you. I think it's very liberating um, and I hope it encourages uh, writers to, um, to, you know, to keep going and to know that what they have to say matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and even if it's your story, it's this thing that's inside of you. It it obviously connects with other people. Like I said, your book made me cry. I could imagine you while you're writing it probably shed some tears as well. Oh, yeah, there are still part. I've read this book now a thousand times. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I'm a big reviser. I've revised and revised. Yeah. Yet, if I sit down with the, the beautiful hard copy of my book in my hand that I actually never thought that I would hold my own book, right? It's like, oh, what a dream come true. When I sit down and read this, there are sections that I know it's coming. There are certain places in this book that I still sob. And um, I'm grateful for that because I don't know. I, I uh, And I get a lot of that from readers. You know, when, when a reader comes up to me at an event or messages me or whatever and says, you know, oh, they put their hand on their heart. Oh, your book, <laughs> right? And I yeah. feel that I their heart and that yeah. what an incredible thing. Yeah, what an incredible yeah, thing. Yeah, it's beautiful. And from my <laughs> from my perspective, I, crying is not like a muscle that I developed in my youth. Like I I don't cry. So to shed tears is, is something meaningful to me. Well, thank you. That yeah. is meaningful to me. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> but also um, what you were saying about uh, being humble, that ties that ties well into what I what I was thinking about writing, writing from your unconscious or writing from your ego, yeah. because it mm -hmm. takes a really strong ego to get out of the way. People people often think that an ego oh, you phrase that that's a great way to phrase that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people think that the ego is all about taking charge, but that's a weak ego. That's a scared ego. That's yes. an ego that's, that's fragile. Yeah, it's fragile and it's connected to this persona that's given to it from the people around the culture. Uh, you know, you said um, uh, 
if you if you don't write from the from the right place, you end up just saying things that people expect you to say. I think of them as like phrases. Every culture has its phrases and its its arcs in storyline that it likes, but you have to be willing to put that aside, and that takes a very strong ego. And for me personally, I didn't start writing until the last few years. It took me a long time. I'm almost forty, and it took you into your you know into your fifties to publish your first book. It takes a long time to develop an ego that's strong enough to get out of the way for some people. I I really, really love the way you phrase that because I think that so often, you know, spiritual teaching and spiritual growth, it's about getting rid of the ego or transcending the ego or whatever, but you just, you really highlighted how essential a certain level of ego is, but it's the right relationship in a way, the, the, um, the meaningful and the healthy, I guess, relationship with that ego that can actually be not just beneficial, but essential. So I, I really love how you phrase that. That's a really brilliant, a brilliant point. And it's the fragile ego that gets us in trouble <laughs> a lot. A lot. Um, yeah. In our creativity yeah. and also in our relationships. Our relationships yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah, I think the great growth of life for anyone is to trans is to transcend that fragile ego, let go, you know, so much of, you know, the the title of my novel, Go as a River, is a quote from the Buddhist monk, the Vietnamese uh, Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, it's actually from one of his paintings, like his, he died about a year ago and, and what a loss to the world, but gratefully he left behind so many amazing teachings. And I, I adore uh, his, his mind and heart, but um, the, the phrase go as a river is not from one of his teachings is one of his lectures or books, but from um, a calligraphy painting. He did, hundreds of calligraphy paintings, these beautiful, simple um, guides to living one's best life. And one of them simply says, you know, just go as a river. So there's this sort of Buddhist idea, as well as Native American um, wisdom traditions that run through my novel that have influenced me a great deal. And, uh, and I know that, you know, this idea of ego, and this idea of transcending ego, or really the idea of, of, uh, of, of the suffering um, throughout the Buddhist tradition, the idea that um, there is suffering that creates more suffering, <laughs> and there is suffering that leans, leads toward the end of suffering. And I think that's exactly what you're saying with this idea of uh, the strong ego, the suffering that lends towards the leads toward the end of suffering is ultimately the idea of getting out of our own way. <laughs> and that's that right. monkey is always playing trips on ourselves and telling us feel bad about this or worry about this or have anxiety about this or let this um, hurt your feelings, whatever it is. It's about transcendence to something that's so much more fundamental. And I I really love the idea that, or the phrasing that you had around ego in that way. It's really brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Just like you were saying with the mountain, you know, let this mountain be grateful for it. Let it, you know, let it show you what you need to learn. Let it fill you up. Uh, yes. A river, a river is the same symbol, like the same symbology of the river is just going to flow where it flows, let it take you, let it, let it show you where to go. Let it take you, you know, the letting go of that. I didn't know that that was going to be uh, a metaphor for my entire publishing journey. <laughs> that I had to go as a river, you know, I had to just let it flow, let it evolve, let it be. Right. But I've been thinking a lot about, you know, it's Blue Mesa Reservoir that um, is the historical backdrop for my book, The Creation of Blue Mesa Reservoir, The Damming of the Wild Gunnison River. It's just down, you know, the highway from where I live. Um, 
I think that, uh, so the, the dam was created in 1965 and it choked the, the once wild river was turned into the largest reservoir in Colorado. So there's a large dam that you, all of us have to drive through constantly. And it's this beautiful, beautiful lake if you didn't know the history behind it. But I have this theory that the Gunnison River is going to outlast the Blue Mesa Dam. <laughs> well, it has to, right? As long as it keeps flowing. It's going to wear it down. Flowing, um, without horrific drought, which in the age of climate change, who knows what our futures hold. But I think that we, 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 the, that humility among, uh, in the face of the natural world, we've constructed all of these, um, all of these myths that human beings can conquer, that human beings can can manipulate. But I think ultimately the natural world um, moves on and it reclaims itself and it moves forward. And even a river that is dammed will find a way to carry on and find a way to move forward. And uh, I hope that that can be a real inspiration and a, a real message for, for people as they, uh, as they finish my book. Yeah, absolutely. The, the rivers played a really strong character in our conversation, but yeah. there's, there's also another, you know, if you look at the cover of your book, it's not a river, but it's a peach, it's a peach with a peach bow or like a branch. And yeah. so I want to circle all the way back because this was one of my first questions that I never asked um, <laughs> or topics I never went into is the other, the other really strong symbolic feature of your book is the peach in the peach orchard. And, um, I personally, I grew up in, uh, I grew up in Northern California for a portion of my childhood. And mm -hmm. in our yard, we had a couple of peach trees. And to mm -hmm. this day, I've never tasted a better fruit than what came from those two peach trees. I used oh. to just stand out there and eat them. <laughs> just That's their own just pull them right off the tree and eat them. And they, they really meant something to me in a way that I, I probably understood a little bit at the time, just because of the freedom and the connection to the, to the trees there, the freedom to just go to the trees and, and, you know, partake of their fruit. But wow, that's now, now that I'm older and I look back, I've never had a peach as good. I don't think I've ever had a piece of fruit as good as those peaches, um, because you would eat them right off the right off the branch when they're perfectly ripe, and you you could just split them open and you have the two halves. Um, but talk to me about peaches. What, where does the, where does the symbology of the peaches come from? And then in the book, there's there's an important aspect of the book about bringing the peaches with her. And yeah. uh, in in that way, it's you know when I think about growing up, I think about um, growing up is is about deciding what you bring with you and what you leave behind. And, yes. uh, so I want to, you know, I want to hear your thoughts about the peaches and then what does it mean to, to yeah. Victoria, but also to you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the peaches, uh, the symbol, the symbolism, uh, of the peaches was very, again, like the river, very consciously constructed in the novel, uh, on my part. And yet I was still, when my publishers here in the United States chose the peach for the cover, I was really surprised based on the title of the book and the novel, um, is being published shockingly all over the world and um, publishing houses all over the world can choose their own cover. So some have chosen the river on the cover, some have chosen the peach, but when Spiegel and Growl, my U.S. publishers, uh, chose the peach is when I really realized the power of of the symbology, as you say, uh, in the novel. It's there very intentionally, but I didn't realize that it was going to resonate quite so strongly with the readers until my editors um, 
explain that to me, honestly. The uh, I get the question a lot in book events of, do you really grow peaches in Colorado? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for me, being a fifth generation Colorado and such a Colorado kid, I was shocked by that question. I was like, yes, I, anyone in Colorado knows we grow the most exquisite, amazing peaches on the western slope of Colorado. But what I learned, what I've kind of always known, but what I learned more during the research of this book is that it's incredibly difficult to grow a peach in the uh, arid high elevations of, of Colorado um, because they're so susceptible. Uh, our temperature variations are so wildly um, unpredictable and peach blossoms and peaches are so susceptible to frost. So the symbology is that um, the peaches are growing against the eye throughout the novel, the theme of being able to grow against the odds. Um, the peaches uh, also are kind of a center point to hold a rather ragged family together because our peaches, peach growers here on the western slope of Colorado, it's such a difficult thing to do that it's usually a generational skill that's handed down um, throughout families. So it was sort of a center point to hold the Nash family together. As you mentioned, the idea of transplantation um, the peaches become a symbol of resilience in new soil, the ability to pick yourself up and move, transplant yourself, let go of your homeland. Can you start over? And the idea of what can and cannot re be reclaimed in the face of loss. Um, all of those things come with the symbology of the of the peach orchard in the novel. And uh, it's been very interesting to me because out on book tour, it's really the peaches. People bring me peaches. They bring me peach jam. They bring me <laughs> hats with peaches on them. And it's the peaches that have um, emerged as one of the things that people have connected to the most. And I think for a similar reason, as you're saying, I think that people hold, they understand how fragile, what a gem a perfectly grown peach is. And and uh, it's really um, been an emotional connection for a lot of my readers, the the peaches in the book. So, yeah, I hope that symbology works to to also reflect the journey, the difficulty of the journey that Victoria goes through. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and you say use the word fragile or uh, you could also say delicate. But another way to say it is precious. precious. That it, yeah, that yeah. it needs to be. Yeah, yeah. I, you could really see your main character as being this thing that is delicate, but has just, there's so much life there and there's so yeah. much beauty there. So yeah, I, I really connected with that. Right, right. And and aren't we all on, on some level, you know, when we're really being honest with ourselves about our deepest vulnerabilities and that which we love the most, um, we all are delicate. And so I think that, uh, yeah, Victoria's connection with the peaches and her determination to save her peach farm in the face of so much other loss um, is, is really a meaningful central point of the novel for me. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's so much more. I, I, I may have over-prepared for this because I thought, okay, <laughs> here comes a, 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 an experienced, you know, lecturer, you've studied literature and philosophy and you know all these things. So I, I came over prepared. But one of the things that I, I, we don't have to go into this, it's just uh, I kind of want to throw it out there just to see if you've had any chance to think about it this way. But yeah. um, I do a lot of I do a lot of personal dream analysis when I, mm -hmm. I when I dream, I really focus on my dreams and I try to figure out what they're trying to tell me. Mm -hmm. um, and so then when I also think about stories, Particularly, you know, if I watch a movie, I can't help but see a movie as a dream. 
or if I, if I, if I read a book, I see it as a dream. And so then in that context, I think, okay, the, the main character is not just the main character in a dream. The main character is also the observer. Mm. And so, and then the dream itself encapsulates all of the characters. And so all of the characters are an aspect of the observer who is the main character. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so uh, when I read your book, there's so many interesting characters. And it's interesting also that the the one of the rivers that flows into the, that was dammed that flows through the Gunnison Valley is the Animus River. Because mm-hmm. from, from a Carl Jung perspective, the Animus is the male counterpart to the female observer, the actual person, right? And so in a way, the Animus becomes the soul or the desired aspect of the the main character. And so you have this, this main character, character, who's this girl, and here's this idea of the animus. And then all, all of a sudden this boy comes into her life, this Wilson moon. And yeah. so I see him as her animus, right? And yeah. so it's this character that must come along that the main character falls in love with to allow a self transformation. And from a Jungian perspective, that that's supposed to happen internally. We fall in love with an aspect of ourselves. We allow that thing to blossom and it creates new life. Um, and so I thought that was fascinating. But then also you have these other characters like the brother Seth. Uh, this quote about Seth is great. There are more folks like Seth than stars in the night sky. And so <laughs> these people who can't help but be trapped by their culture, their ideas, the world they grew up in. And in a way, if if... Victoria, your main character is the observer, then in a way her brother Seth is her shadow. This thing that can't can't help but act out because everybody has a persona and everybody has to be a thing. Um, but there are also other fascinating characters and you could think of them as either aspects of the psyche or you could think of them as archetypes. And you have this one character, Mad Myrtle, who's this lady um, in the story who everybody kind of dismisses. She's kind of crazy. But in yeah. truth, she's in a way she's suffered in a way that has put her closer to truth than everybody else in the valley. And she's maybe she has a hard time integrating that to move back from this world of madness into the world of the collective. But she's an important part of your main character's journey as well, because because she shows her that, hey, everybody's human and everybody just because you don't accept what everybody else accepts. That doesn't make you crazy. Yeah. And to ask the question, so Wilson Moon and Ruby Alice are both outcasts. You know, they're they're outcasts. To ask that question of who, who is accepted, who's embraced, who's outcast and why, you know, those, those questions of how we see, how we view, how we construct the identity of another human being that is unknowable to us. We don't know Ruby Alice's experience the grief that she carries what turned her toward being who she how she is again it goes back to compassion for me compassion for ruby alice and her whole story but both wilson moon and ruby alice are outcasts based on that very limited um inherited assumption of who people quote unquote should be neither of them fit that that mold and you know the character wilson moon i I won't go into it 
too deeply just for time, but he was the most difficult character and the most difficult aspect of writing Go as a River for me. And you you mentioned this idea of, of lens and, and ways of seeing. And uh, um, for me, Wilson Moon's character was essential to include the indigenous experience because obviously well before the displacement of the predominantly white farmers and ranchers of the town of Iola, which is under Blue Mesa Reservoir, was the indigenous population of the Western Slope of Colorado. So under that, under that reservoir is layers and layers of, of displacement. I needed to tap into that because it would be so disrespectful to ignore that story. Um, and yet it wasn't necessarily my story to tell Wilson Moon's full story. And so we don't know a lot about Wilson Moon primarily because I chose lens. And I think this is true for every writer. We have to chose, choose point of view. We have to know what can and cannot be said, what can and cannot be seen, and what can and cannot be included in a narrative. So I chose to see Wilson Moon only through Victoria's lens because that was a lens that I felt that I could own authentically. You know, And so these are all these layers of decisions we have to make. But I then wanted to portray both Wilson Moon and Ruby Alice as compassionately as possible, unpack some of those characters like Seth, who's just an open racist, but... Um, but you have to ask why. Why would a young man of that age already have inherited those horrific biases? Um, I hope my novel encourages is, encourages reader to ask why, you know, not to tell them what to think, but to lay a lot of complexity of being human in front of them and to say, you know, pull from this what you will um see what what is what what is helpful to you in terms of your understanding of the human experience i hope that these various characters and i appreciate your reading and bringing up some of these these other characters because each one of them was constructed really carefully around these thematic concerns of how can we even know another human being and and why is it that we believe certain things about others when they are absolutely not true um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Thank you for your analysis, you're like I said, you're an excellent reader. <laughs> well, really it's I just do what I enjoy, and that's what I enjoy. So, um, yeah, and and I think you did a fantastic job through that lens because, for one, again, drawing back to this idea of the the unconscious speaking through you, the the idea of Wilson Moon being somebody from a Native American tribe. These are people who were on the land in a in a much older time in a much more primitive time and in again found way like a deeper a, a right. connection to the land that even those of us in our culture who think we're connected to the land really can't even conceive of like a yeah. deep connection yeah yeah and in a way from uh i don't know if you did this intentionally or not but it speaks to the unconscious as well the, the this thing that was this uh these people that existed a long long time ago that are still speaking to us and, uh, and I think you did it, you did a great job of not making it about him and not yeah. making, not over, overstepping like the idea of what you're going to share. I thought you did a great job. Thank you. That was really important to me. And, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time on various, uh, Native American, uh, culture, Native American, uh, nations, um, working and learning. And, um, one of the questions I've often asked because I teach a lot of Native American philosophy and reality structures in my classroom. I, I've I've talked with a lot of elders and said, "What would what would you please tell me how to teach this? What would you like me to say?" And the most common uh, answer that I've gotten in my lifetime is, "Please tell them that we are still here." And I, 
I've loved the idea to bring to the contemporary consciousness that um, the indigenous experience is not something that happened only in the past, that 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 wisdom tradition is still and the and the humans who have lived that and the the, the history, that deep and complex and painful and beautiful um, tradition of who they are, they are still here. They're still here. And thus, I wanted to include that in the most respectful way possible, while at the same time, not shying away from the reality of the horrors of, of racism. It's a very, very complicated thing to do for any writer, um, but I did put a lot of thought and intention to how I represented. Yeah, yeah very absolutely. Difficult. Yeah, well, uh, Michelle, I could talk to you all day about this stuff, but uh, I should let you go. I want to leave you with this quote. There's an author that I really like, Karen Armstrong, who's kind of a religious historian. And since we touched on spiritual or religious themes a few times, um, there's this idea that the, and, and you hear this from Carl Jung, you hear it from Joseph Campbell, but there's this idea that the modern interpreter of myth, the modern provider of myth is no longer the shaman or the priest or the religious prophet, but actually the artist and the novelist. Oh, and, wouldn't and, that be nice? Because I feel like it's uh, media. <laughs> the, yeah. I feel like, I feel like there are, in this world, there there are definitely magicians and there are sorcerers and um, I would say you're on the, you're on the, you're on the light side. But, but I love the idea that it could be the artists and the poets yeah. and the writers and the yes, I will go. I love that. Let's just go with that. So Karen Armstrong, she says, if it is written and read with serious attention, a novel like a myth or any great work of art can become an initiation that helps us to make a painful rite of passage from one phase of life, one state of mind to another. A novel like a myth teaches us to see the world differently. It shows us how to look into our own hearts and to see our world from a perspective that goes beyond our own self-interest. If professional religious leaders cannot instruct us in mythical lore, our artists and our creative writers can perhaps step into this priestly role and bring fresh insight to our lost and damaged world. Wow. And I think I think that's what you're doing, Shelley. So thank you so oh, much. My God. Thank you so much. Josh, that is beautiful. That's gonna make me cry. <laughs> before um before we wrap up, where can people find you? Where can they get your book? And if you're still out there on on any kind of tour promoting it, where can they even see you in person? Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. I um uh Shellyreed.com is my website. And uh, on there is my uh, where where uh, upcoming events, I guess I would call it. I've been on constant book tours since about March 1st. I think I've had 70 events and all over. <laughs> my, novel's translated into, my novel's being translated into 32 languages. It's currently being wow. sold in 40 countries or something all over the world. You can find it absolutely everywhere. And... Uh, um, I am for the first time in my entire life also on social media on Instagram at shellyreed.author. And um, I think those are all the answers to your questions. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I do love meeting my readers at events. So um, I have some book festivals and whatnot coming up. So anyone who's listening, I, I always love to meet you. Um, but thank you for the wonderful conversation, Josh. Thank you for the incredible kindness. Thank you for the this podcast that you're doing, I I went through it and listened to it in preparation to sit and chat with you today. And I am astounded at the breadth and the depth and the um, creativity that is feeding this podcast. You're, this is a very unique approach to conversation and the types of people that you have on. And I think that is absolutely crucial dialogue for the modern world. So I thank you for having me and also for the work that you're doing through this podcast. 
Well, thank you. That's very nice. I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's fun because this is what I enjoy. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, let's talk again. We're talking about these heavy themes, but I guess I should, we all should remind ourselves that life (laughs) and our creativity should also be joyful and fun. Very good. Yeah. Good to end on. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you, Shelly. Thank you, Josh. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Explorer Poet Podcast, exploring the blurry line between our physical world and our abstract realities. I hope you find this and every episode worthwhile. To find links to my guest websites and social media accounts, and for all Explorer Poet content, please visit my website, explorerpoet.com. You can also follow on Instagram at Explorer Poet or on Twitter at Explorer Poet Pod. If you have comments or suggestions, please send an email to explorerpoet at gmail.com. Please follow and rate the podcast on your favorite app. And if you really, really want to be supportive, please share an episode with a friend. Thanks again.